0: I want to begin with the Gospel this Sunday, which is Luke 4, Luke's account of Jesus' temptation. And I want to follow the text fairly closely and suggest some possibilities that might be glossed over by familiar sketches of the story of the temptation. And then move from from those texts, or from this text, to, to the others. After his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So first, you have this movement directly from baptism to wilderness, led by the Spirit. So Jesus comes up out of the water, he's filled with the Spirit who rests on him, his life overflows with the Spirit, and then the Spirit leads him into the wilderness and this is a, a kind of retracing of israel's history a retracing of the steps that led from bondage into promise but it's a it is in some sense a reversal of those steps right so i'm moving from the promised land back into the wilderness through the jordan and all of this is led by the spirit meaning that that Jesus is is being directed urged along by by God that there he he has a sense that he must do this and then he's tempted for 40 days by the devil so not not that he fasts for 40 days and then faces the devil or is tempted at the end of the 40 days but that it is a 40 day temptation and of course, the 40 days are, are symbolic. It recalls Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It recalls the stories of Moses and Elijah and their 40 days in fasting. But I think the the point here is that it, it is an extended, a, a very extended combat between Jesus and the suggestions of evil that are arising up from within the nature he has assumed, our nature. There are silly ways of presenting the temptations in which it's hard to take them seriously, right? The, the idea that Jesus is in the wilderness and a snake slithers up to him and talks or that he's he's in the wilderness and some wraith-like figure, hooded figure with a skeleton face starts to make promises that he can't come through on I think it's really crucial to, to hear these as words that are rising up in Jesus' own consciousness. Right? These are possibilities that are presenting themselves to him. And there, there are, I think, a couple of possibilities here in terms of how these temptations that play out over the 40 days, how they relate to the temptations that are named here in the text. So one way of hearing it is, these are the three temptations that have played out over and over and over again. Not in these exact words, but the force of these temptations have hit him again and again, waking and sleeping for 40 days, or that he has undergone other temptations for 40 days, and these are the last three. And no doubt, because he is famished, he ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. Because he is famished, he's most vulnerable to these temptations, and that the devil, the Satan, begins at that point of vulnerability with calling him to turn the stone to bread. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. So it may be that the devil is wanting him to question himself, and that's almost certainly an aspect of it. But I think it's, it's even more a hope that he will take up his task in ways that are false to the calling. That not that he doubts who he is. I think an implication here, well, in all the gospels, is that the demons recognize Jesus, and that Jesus is is kind of undeniably him himself for them and and for himself. Right? That he knows who he is, and they know who he is. So it it may be that there is a question of identity here, but I, that's not how I hear it. I hear it less as If indeed you are the Son of God, prove it. And more, since you are the Son of God, and that is a way you can translate it, since you are the Son of God, why don't you fulfill that sonship, that vocation of messianic intervention, this way? Command this stone to become bread. And as you know, this this does rework Israel's temptations in the wilderness. This is deeply shaped by what happens in Deuteronomy. And it, it makes me think, not that Luke is retelling this, offering us his own theology of temptation in ways that have nothing to do with what Jesus underwent. I think Luke is giving us his theology of temptation. But I also think it's important to see this as, Jesus is the one who has grappled with those texts. And these false suggestions, these, these lies that are surfacing in him, are coming from his the, the assumed human nature and its reading of Israel's texts and its its understanding of the vocation he's been delivered so that in Matthew when Jesus rebukes Peter and says you know get behind me Satan you have in mind the things of human beings not the ways of God you have in mind the ways of human beings not the ways of God that is essentially an in, an internalized experience here right and an internal one i mean it's one that's happening within jesus the voice of the enemy is speaking up within jesus own thoughts and again either this is hitting him in one version or another over and over and over or as i think is probably more likely we've come to the end of 40 days of assault and constant warfare waking and sleeping and now Jesus is famished. He's emaciated. He's barely, barely alive. And in that moment of vulnerability, in, in extreme vulnerability, he's being asked to take some alternate route, some other way than the way of the cross. And Jesus answers from within those texts: "One does not live by bread alone." And of course, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer has shown. The ultimate, we live by the word of God, and the penultimate, we need bread, are held together here, as everywhere in Jesus' life. That Jesus does not say, we do not need bread. He does need it, never more than he needs it in this moment. But, we do not live by bread alone. And, he refuses to command the stone to become bread in order to accomplish it. Then, The devil, from that point, leads him up and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. So again, we we can't picture this... I I I don't know how you would film it. And I don't know how you picture it at all. Except to say that this is something happening within Jesus. Again, it's happening within his consciousness. The devil is not some figure external to him. Easily identified as evil. But is... The angel of light within Jesus' own processes of thought and reflection And lines of thought are emerging for Jesus That lead away from the will of God And those lines of thought lead to command the stone to become a loaf of bread In other words, exert your, your powers In ways that are false to your calling And false to the will of God for this world and then another line is, you could have all these kingdoms, if only you'll worship me. Now, how do we hear this, seriously? Because what, what would Jesus be worshiping? I mean, I think the Gospels, are, again, are clear that the demons recognize him and that Jesus knows who he is. It, it, again, it's it's easy for us to think about that if you are the Son of God in terms of a question of identity, because we struggle with identity. But I, I don't think there's any indication in the Gospels, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think there's any indication in the Gospel that Jesus struggled with his identity. And the demons, at every turn, in, in every Gospel, recognize him immediately. At least they recognize a uniqueness about him, even if they don't. Know exactly who he is. They have a sense that he's different, that he's that he's unique. And so here, I think the the point would be, what is Jesus being tempted to worship? And I, I think it's closest to say he's being tempted to worship his own way. He's being tempted to make the exact same move that Satan is is said to have made in in the Christian tradition, the, the move of insisting on his own way a a kind of self-willed enactment of what has been commanded and that in in if he asserts his own way that he will indeed have all the kingdoms of the world but jesus responds with worship the lord your god and serve only him and I, i i think that we get this glimpse of jesus the yieldedness of his humanity to the will of the Father that is an enactment of obedience for us and I'll come back I'll come back to more about what I think that means in a moment. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple Again I think these are there's something like dreams or nightmares that you know it's, it's playing out in the inner landscape of Jesus heart. But he's, he's there suddenly on the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. So, before I look at Jesus' response, just a quick note. I mean, the devil knows scripture astonishingly well. And I think the point here is the devil the devil's knowing is Jesus' knowing. As it is warped by human nature By evil What in Jewish tradition is called The evil inclination The way that our will bends away from, from the truth From the good From the beautiful And here this is What we're encountering is Jesus' own knowing of the text As evil wants him to hear it And understand it And what he any response do not put the lord your god to the test so there's this jesus speaking to his own nature which is our nature that he has assumed and personally bringing that nature into line with his father's will that is the the divine nature bringing it in line with the spirit who is leading him so jesus personally is allowing our nature to surface the lies that the evil one has sown into it and is then submitting those lies to the light of the truth the fire of the truth that consumes them and it's an insistent an insistence here the last of all that the lord your god must not be put to the test and then luke tells us when the devil had finished every test and that again i hear as 40 days of assault followed by these 3 Culminating temptations, he departed from him until an opportune time. And again, what I hear is that Jesus' human nature is resettles that our human nature that Jesus assumes is kind of calmed by the light and fire of the truth. It, it's it's brought into line for for a while, at least. And we're, in a, in a moment, I want to turn. To Maximus confessors, read of Jesus' temptations, but let me just say a bit about how important it is. I think to attend to this as an experience Jesus has for us, that, and and not to move too quickly to finding in this story a pattern of how we are tempted. I think I think there's something to that, right? I mean, there there are ways of reading these temptations as a, as a kind of mapping of the temptations we undergo, and Christian teachers have. Have understood it that way for from the beginning I mean you you can see you know Augustine makes the connections to the the Johannine lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life there 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 are ways of understanding this as a pattern of temptation and all of us face you know the the desire to grasp for authority or the abuse of of power in God's name and again I, there's, there's something to that. But what's crucial is that this is Jesus' experience. Not that it's a pattern for mine, but it is the condition in which I live. And it's the, it's the condition that makes possible the life God wants me to live. Right? So we really need to attend to the Christological point. And I, I want to emphasize that. That said... I do think at the heart of these temptations, again, which are emerging, you know, false lines of thought emerging in Jesus' own consciousness, in his own heart. That, that is the way in which our nature works apart from the Spirit. That's what, in Adam, we are all going to do. In fact, I think to be in Adam, quote-unquote, to, to have our nature broken by the fall... Is to mean that we, we constantly have lines of thought Inclinations of our hearts Instincts that pull us away from the light of love The light of adoration of God And attention to our neighbor And Jesus experiences that Internalizes that Precisely to heal it And to set us free From the temptation from the set us free from thinking that that we we have no choice but to follow one of these false lines right that that disobedience is inevitable because we cannot discern the the way forward the way the way god wants us to take and it's essential to say here that it's not a, it's not simply a matter of knowing the Bible. Again, the devil knows Scripture too, and the more you read the Scripture, the devil's knowing is tied to your knowing. The devil's work in your life and my life is intimately tied to what I've actually internalized, what's at work inside of me because of what's at work outside of me in the communities I live and move and breathe in. So just like we have in the in the Gospels, this promise that if if we If we know the Scriptures, the Spirit will bring them to our remembrance. It's also true that if we know the Scripture, the demons will bring them to our remembrance. But they will bring them to our remembrance in a way that leads down lines that take us out of step with the Spirit, that take us out of a life of compassion and mercy and patience, and away from intercession into control and possession. Meaning we are possessed and we are therefore possessing others or we are repelling others because they cannot control us, which happens with legion. I, maybe I'm overstating the point. I mean maybe maybe I am beating a dead horse, so to speak, but I think there is this notion implied, if not explicitly stated in our churches that you know if we just pray more and read our Bible more and fast, We'll overcome the temptations of the evil one. But what Jesus shows us is that giving ourselves to fasting and prayer and the knowledge of Scripture opens us up always to greater and greater temptations. Right, So that the more like God we become, in a very real sense, the more vulnerable we are to that which is set against God, to that which wants to to thwart God's will and wants to... Frustrate the the goodness of God in the world, so there's no kind of religious mechanism that's going to set us free from temptation. So I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to Maximus's read of Jesus' temptation, but let's with that in mind. Let me turn to these other texts for just a moment, because I think there, especially Psalm ninety-one in Romans ten, but also to some degree Deuteronomy twenty-six, which is the Old Testament reading, we have tried to use these texts, tried to take them in hand in ways to control outcomes, right? to to guarantee outcomes, not realizing that that is precisely what the enemy wanted Jesus to do, was to use the text. That's what the enemy was doing, using biblical texts in ways that are at odds with the character and wisdom of God. So, like Romans 10, for example, the word is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, this is Romans 10, you will be saved. Now, we've read that mechanistically as if, you know, the the so-called Billy Graham model, right? That you, if you want to go to heaven and not hell, if you want to be saved and not lost, then it's as simple as, Confessing and believing. You will be saved. If you believe with your heart, you're justified. And you confess with your mouth, and you're saved. And then, of course, building on that kind of mechanistic understanding of quote unquote salvation, the faith movement has read this text to be a promise that confession determines what we receive, right? That what we speak happens in our lives. Positive confession brings about a life of blessing and prosperity. But those are ways of using the text rather than recognizing the Spirit's pulse or feeling the Spirit's pulse in the text so that you don't follow the lines of thought that use the words of Scripture to lead you away from the will of God. And this has, I think, this reading has famished, left us famished. In the word of faith movement the Pentecostal charismatic movement insofar as we've been kind of we've sold ourselves to a kind of prosperity gospel and and more broadly to the evangelical movement and its understanding of conversion which just that that idea that I can believe and confess and now I'm saved and before I was lost I mean that that's just utterly at odds with everything that's in scripture and everything that I think is true about the life God has called us to live right there there is our understanding of the great commission is just a horrible distortion and our understanding of conversion is a horrible distortion of of the truth and even though it's couched in biblical language it does in fact lead away from the will of god which is for us not to follow some formula god is not a legalist right there's no there's no formula for salvation we have to have confidence that to believe in him is not to be put to shame which is a statement about the future right that we are we're staking our lives on the confidence that god will not let us be put to shame right that that when all is said and done we will not be exposed as fools for trusting this god who acts and that this is true for everyone there's no distinction paul says between Jew and Greek The Lord is Lord of all and generous to all who call on him For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved But that saving Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved That saving is not something that happens Through the enactment of a formula And it's not something that happens In a moment But it is a statement about The, the culmination Of all of our lives Being given over to God In, in theological terms this is a statement about eschatology the Lord is coming and he will set the world right. And all of us who've staked our lives in that confidence that God is coming and will set the world to rights, that we will not be shown to have been fools for trusting God with that with that coming, the God who is coming. So then to Psalm 91, similar misreading, I think. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High abides under the shadow of the Almighty. He shall say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my stronghold, my God in whom I put my trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge and the Most High your habitation, there shall no evil happen to you. Neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and adder. You shall trample the young lion and the serpent under your feet. Because he is bound to me in love, therefore will I deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I am with him in trouble. I will rescue him and bring him to honor. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And so the, the, this is the selection from Psalm 91 for the text. Which is verses 1 and 2, and then 9 to 16. So again, these words are true. They're the words of God to us. They're words of the Father to the Son and the Spirit, and therefore words from the Father to me and to you and that same Spirit. But there are ways in which these words can be twisted, can be devilishly twisted to suggest lines that lead away from the will of God. Lines of action and feeling and thought and confession that, in fact, are at odds with what the Spirit desires for us. They're true. It is true, right? that no evil will happen to us but it's not true in the way we're liable to hear it if we've been shaped in a shallow consumeristic christianity that's trying to sell us the product of god's protection god does not protect us in that sense right there there, there isn't a you know you can't buy the divine hedge you can't buy it with money you can't buy it with piety there's no way to leverage god's power to secure a safer life for yourself and those of us who've been formed in an americanized christianity that's really hard to hear because so much of what has gripped us is the the felt need for that kind of protection and the felt need to have the assurance that we have, in fact, been given that protection in God. But we haven't. And any of us who've suffered and suffered deeply know we haven't. And even though we can sometimes excuse that suffering by blaming it on ourselves or blaming it on other people, the fact is God has not given us the assurance that our lives will be safer or wealthier. More prosperous uh, Luckier um, that w- The Christian life Doesn't have advantages It's not a privileged life in any sense Like if, if we have privilege That has to do with nature, not creation It has to do with the way things are happening Not with what God is doing and what is happening And there's no need to resent it There's no need to To overreact to it. I mean I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer earlier. I mean he is very careful to think about what it means for him that he is such a privileged man and what he is to do with that privilege. So if and and all of us who are hearing this, I mean we're privileged enough to to even have this conversation, right? So that I'm I'm not denigrating privilege. I'm simply saying it is it can never be confused with blessing and it can never be confused with something God has brought about. It's something that's happened, but it's not something that God is doing. And there's always this distinction between what God is doing and what is happening and what is happening, between creation and nature, between the will of God and the workings of this world. And we we have to keep coming back to that, that reality again and again that difference, which makes all the difference. And so Psalm 91 is true the one for whom it's most true, Jesus, or it's true for us because it's true for Jesus, lives a life of, of unbelievable suffering. Right in, in the creed we say, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And we and there's nothing in the creed about the life of Jesus, the pleasures he enjoyed, the, the joys he experienced. Of course, they're there in the Gospels, and the creed is meant to... Push us back on the text of scripture. And we know that Jesus did deeply enjoy life. But the joy Jesus knew in life. Was a joy that came in the midst of that suffering. His whole life from birth to death. Was was a life of sorrows. The joys he experienced rose up within that that sorrow. And and the same is going to be true for you and me. The shelter of the most high. Is the shelter of. Of Christ And Christ's life is lived In the broken places of the world It's lived with those who are suffering He's come for the poor He's come for the imprisoned And for the sick As I've said You've heard me say God does not want us to suffer But God wants us to go to the suffering And he wants suffering to go through us In order for those who are suffering To be liberated And so if we want to be in the shelter of the Most High We have to come near the presence of those who are suffering most. And that the shadow of the Almighty is the shadow cast from the cross. And we have to abide there. We have to abide in that. That, that is the shadow. Uh, the valley of the shadow of death is... The shadow in the valley of, of death is cast by the body of Jesus on the cross. And that's the shadow of the Almighty. The Almighty dies. The Almighty is dead. And we are called to share in that death. So then, a few thoughts on Deuteronomy 26. I'll, I'll start to wrap it up and end with looking at what Maximus says about Jesus' temptations. This is a promise to Israel that they're going to come into a land, a possession, and that when they when they possess it, they're to offer thanks to God for it. But the, but the condition is they must offer this thanks. They must give their Eucharist in a recalling. Of their past. The, their father was a wanderer. The wonder a wandering Aramean was my father or was my ancestor. I'm working right now on a book. I have to have at least a lot of it written by June, so pray for me that I'll get it done. But that is is a, a kind of Christology focused on Jesus as the wondering Jew. And this this text is prominent in in the book. This sense that to be to live the will of God in this world is to have to live in a state of exile, a state of pilgrimage because again, the way things are working in the world, the way they're working in terms of what we can see, the outcomes that are happening day to day, those are not the workings of God. God is working in those workings, but those are not the workings of God. And we have to attend to what God is doing Behind the veil of appearance. Behind what seems to work and and fail. And this text is calling Israel to offer their offerings. Reminding themselves that this began in the story of a wandering people. And that even now, if they've come into the possession of the land, they have to be filled up with the, the spirit of pilgrimage, right? That they, they can live in this land that's been given to them, but they have to live there as resident aliens. They have to live there with a heart of pilgrimage, which is you know, the Psalms of Ascent speak to this, and the prophets challenge them again and again for the ways in which they settle wrongly into what God has given them. And one way of reminding, of kind of holding that true, is is to offer thanks, by telling the story of the beginning. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor, but also it's it's critical to do it in the presence of aliens. So at the end of that passage, it says, "You shall set it down the fruit of the ground that you've received. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and bow down before the Lord your God." This kind of bending to the will of God. Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate. So you've been given this. This this is your possession, quote-unquote. But you must bow down in thanks, And then from that, and I think the bowing is about coming down to the place of foot washing. Coming down to the place of service. And, and when you're bent to that place, right, as... The disciples bend to look into the empty tomb. When you're bent to that posture, then out of you flows this blessing to the Levites, who of course do not have possession in the land, and the aliens who reside among you. And I mean, there's so much that I'd love to say about this. I mean, I think it's an astonishing text, right? That you cannot give thanks for what God has done for you rightly. Without it spilling over into the lives of those people who are alien to you, who are other, who are strangers, including strangers you seem to have dispossessed, right? I mean, that, th- these aliens who reside among you, which is, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an odd turn of phrase, right? The aliens who reside among you. Like, these are, or at least possibly are, the very Canaanites that Israel has expelled but what the connection I want to make for now is back to those in those unfaithful lines of thought I keep talking about that surfaced in Jesus in the wilderness. That the aliens who reside among you that that one way of hearing that, again, it's not by any means the only one, but that within each of us there are lines of thought that are Levites, right? They're priestly lines of thought, their instincts, um, intuitions, impulses, that are that are good they've been trained in ways that are instinctually Christlike we we've developed a kind of second nature of compassion or a second nature of attentiveness to need or a second nature to hold our tongue instead of lashing out in bitterness but there are also always aliens residing among us and when we come to the table to give thanks for what God has done in Jesus we need to we need to realize that The Levites and the aliens are always there, right? And so, with with all that said, let's come back to the story of the temptations and just a few words from Maximus' confessor on the temptations of Christ. And this is from his work on the difficulties in sacred scripture. And it's question 21 for those who want to read more about it. And he's dealing specifically with a line from Colossians 2. About stripping off the principalities and powers. What does that mean? He, he's, he wants to delve into something of the, the the mystery. Of Christ stripping off these principalities and powers. And, and he ties this directly to the story of Jesus being tempted. So just a couple passages I want to read. And Maximus is, is is no easy read. So stay with me for just a moment. Listen to what he says here. This is question 21, section 4. In order to rescue human nature from this evil state of helplessness, the only begotten Son and Word of God, becoming perfect man out of his love for mankind, assumed the sinlessness without the incorruption of Adam's original constitution. Right, So he... He takes on Adam's nature, human nature, that is sinless but is not incorrupt. In other words, Jesus takes on the decay of fallen flesh, even though he himself is not guilty. He also assumed the passibility, the, the, the capacity of this fallen humanity to suffer and to change, to, to decay again to death. Without sin, from the birth that was subsequently introduced into human nature. As I said a moment ago, Maximus is referencing back earlier from the, in the chapter. It was in the passability of Adam, that the, the suffering of Adam, on account of sin, that the wicked demons conducted their invisible operations concealed under the law of contingent human nature. Right? So what he's suggesting here is that the demonic and the satanic work from within our fallenness. They work from within us, in our minds, in our hearts, in our instincts in our subconscious in our bodies and they're they're not like external imps right they're they're preying on whatever we mean by the demonic and the satanic it's preying on the gone wrongness in us the ways in which our thoughts and our feelings and our impulses our instincts our bodies are are leading away or leading us away from the will of god and Jesus assumes all that without sin. And in the wilderness, he confronts all of that. That that's Maximus's read. But why does he do it? He does this for, well, first of all. Maximus says he starts by doing this in the wilderness to confront pleasure, the the pleasure that sin brings about, that actually is in the end not pleasure at all and destroys the pleasure God means for us and brings about all kinds of pain God does not mean for us and in the end in the garden and on the cross he confronts the pain of evil but he maximus says he enters into the wilderness in order to draw the devil up out of him right to to let to expose all of these demonic pressures that are in our nature so the key here Is that God the Son, Jesus, the Word, has assumed our nature, yours and mine, the humanity you have and the humanity I have, the human nature that all human beings have. He's assumed that humanity. As Bonifer says, he's not a human being. He's the human being. He is human nature. And he's taken it all as his own personally. And what he does in the wilderness is allow all of that, all of the lies that are within us, again, within our bodies, within our instincts within our cravings, within our thoughts. He he allows all of them to surface over that 40-day trial so that he can conquer them. And what he brings about is a transfiguration, the beginning of the transfiguration of human nature. And then in Gethsemane and on the cross, he completes, Maximus says, he completes that transfiguration of human nature. And the resurrection seals it. In the ascension, lifts in the ascension, he lifts that renewed humanity to the right hand of God, and then that is poured out on all of us at Pentecost. That new nature, that that new uh, a, a humanity that is capable of discerning the will of God and enacting the will of God without being led away. Let me read just a couple more passages from Maximus. He provoked, by means of our temptations, the wicked power. In other words, Jesus was not tempted because he needed to be tempted. He didn't need to prove anything to himself. He didn't need to prove anything to the Father. He is tempted with our temptations. Not just like us, but with the temptations we suffer. So that he could thwart the wicked power by his own attack. Right. So for Maximus, the wilderness is Jesus drawing the devil out. Out into the wilderness... It's a trap, essentially. It's it's a it's a it's meant to look like Jesus is being trapped, but in fact he is trapping the the devil and the evil instincts that are in us, and putting to death the very power that expected to thwart him, just as it had thwarted Adam in the beginning. This then this is section 5 of question 21 this then is how in his initial experience of temptation he put off the principalities and authorities that assailed him removing them from human nature removing them from human nature healing the passability associated with pleasure so the suffering that comes from sinful pleasure and in himself canceling the bond of indebtedness more language from Colossians 2, of Adam's voluntary assent to the passions arising from pleasure. For it is by this bond that man's power of choice inclines toward wicked pleasure to his own disadvantage. For by his actions he tacitly proclaims his condition of domination, which on account of his fear of death prevents him from freeing himself from his subjugation to pleasure. So much here, but I'm going to start to wind it down with this. What he's saying is, is Adam was called to transfigure all of creation. God entrusted Adam humanity, not you know, the first male, but God entrusted humanity with the work of transfiguring creation, bringing it up to sacramentality, like cultivating the earth, singing and dancing and writing and building and planting and painting and listening, being present in this world in such a way that all creatures, great and small, are brought up into their fullness, brought up into full flourishing, brought up into full sacramentality. It should have been that every bread was the bread of the Eucharist. It should have been that all water cleansed the soul and the mind as well as the body but because of sin because human beings and in another passage maximus will say from the beginning like not not just after a while there's for, for maximus there's no like block of time in which human beings are living it up living as they should like right from the word go from a they we were wrong Like we, we turned away, unnaturally, absurdly we turned away from our task but what we were meant to do is bring all of creation up into its fullness as an offering to God and because we didn't do that we live under the fear of death and cannot free ourselves from the kinds of pleasures and pains that actually dehumanize us we're at the mercy of our own instincts and our own desires and our own cravings driven by the fear of death. But Jesus has assumed all that and he faces all of it down for us but not as an example. And this is, this is the key. and This is where I want to end. Not as an example. He doesn't do it to show us it can be done. He does it so that we in the doing of it can find that it, that it is his doing in us. He removes the principalities and powers from human nature. And in baptism, that's the nature we're given. When we are born again, we're given that nature, that renewed human nature. What is not assumed, Gregory says, what is not assumed is not healed. But what has been assumed has been healed. And human nature in its fullness has been assumed and has been healed. And that's what we're given in baptism. That's what the Spirit brings about in us. And that is what's now possible for us to live. The problem is we are again and again tempted to live as if that has not been accomplished. And this I think to tie this to the season. This is what I think Lent is about. I mean in some ways this, you know, of course we have to do this all the time, but the lenten theme that runs through the whole Christian year, the whole Christian life is that we have to continually resist the lie that it's not possible to live the way of Jesus. It is possible to live the way of Jesus. It's always possible to live the way of Jesus. The the will of God can be done. And I may not be ready to do it. And if I'm not, then God will work with me. Forgiveness can happen and it's it's not to say that i can live sinlessly because the world the world in its brokenness is such that even the desire to be sinless is itself sinful right because it would it would be an attempt to kind of save myself at the expense of my neighbor so that, the aspiration here is not sinlessness the aspiration is the doing of the will of god in christ the the aspiration is christ likeness christ like care for my neighbor and when I say Christ-like, don't hear me saying you're a, a best approximation to who Jesus is, but your enactment as fully as possible of who Christ is in you, the, the nature you've been given. So in Lent, as we are as we're trying to move into the depths of this life God has given us, we've got aliens and Levites living inside of us, right? We, we have to learn to bring about that, their reconciliation, we have to learn to bring about the reconciliation of the Levites and the aliens outside of us and we can do all of that because Christ's nature is operative in us